So Genesis chapter 13, we're calling this study Back to Bethel. And we're going to look at all 18 verses. Abram was a man who was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, was an idolater, presumably worshiping the, the moon god, because that's what they did. We know historically, archaeologically, in Ur of the Chaldeans that they worshiped this god. The god was called Sin, um, of all things. And, um, but God reached out to this man, and, and Abram had an incredible encounter with the glory of God. And God said, Abram, I'm taking you to a different land, and I'm going to do a different thing. I'm going to be your God. You're going to worship me, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And it's through you that a seed will come that will be a blessing to all the nations. And, of course, that seed is Jesus, that one that was initially, originally promised to um, uh, Eve, that she would have a descendant, a child, a seed that would reverse the curse that had come through the fall of sin. And, of course, Jesus has done that. But this is the family now that we're going to focus on. We've gone through a lot of names, gone through a lot of different nations. But this is the nation, this is the family that is going to be in center focus through the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Scriptures because it's all about Jesus. And so we get less concerned about the other uh, sons, the other nations, and we become more concerned and focused upon the nation of Israel and the descendants and eventually the, the tribe of Judah uh, through which Jesus came through. So that's kind of what we're doing here. Well, he finally makes it down after... Uh, detour in Haran and makes it down to Bethel and he first worships the Lord there and builds an altar. Genesis chapter 12 verse 8, but famine comes to the land and he and the family head down to Egypt. And while he's there, he has a lapse of faith. Now we call Abraham the father of faith, but this man of faith, the thing that he's so well known for, it becomes a point of, of, of difficulty. It becomes a challenge and he does not trust the Lord to protect his family which is hitting right at the heart of the promise that he made that I will give you many descendants. Because at this point, he has no descendants, but he's afraid to claim Sarai as his wife because he thinks, hey, they're going to want you. You're a beautiful woman. We get down there, they're going to want to take you as, as a wife and bring you into the harem. Now, they, they had this interesting kind of uh, more, you know, scale of morality. They would never take another person's uh, wife, that would be adultery, but they would kill you so she would be free to be taken. So he was like, they're going to kill me so they can take you. And so they concoct this plan and lie and say, no, she's not my wife. Um, but eventually it's found out indeed. Um, and the Pharaoh comes and, and levels a rebuke and he ends up leaving the land of Egypt and comes with blessing, comes back uh, up into the land from Egypt, and that's where we pick up the story at verse 1. And let's read of his return to worship. Then Abram went up from Egypt, and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been, here it is, look at this, at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made at the first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord or the name of, of Yahweh. Actually, in the Old Testament, you see how uh, most of your Bibles, I imagine, would have this. It's Lord is all capitalized. 
Whenever you see that in um, the Old Testament, and you'll see it only in the Old Testament, whenever you see it in the Old Testament, it's an indication that the covenant name of God is being used. Now, we don't really know how to pronounce it. Jehovah, Yahweh are, are two of the uh, ways in which are commonly put forth as how to pr pronounce this, Jehovah or Yahweh. But um, th that's it. And so he calls upon the name of Yahweh. Um, when you see uh, capital L and then just lowercase O-R-D, that's just a uh, more referring to him as like a master or, um, in, in that sense of it. But here is, it's the actual name of God that he is worshiping and calling upon him. So he comes, um, um, journeys from the south uh, down in Egypt, comes up to this area and um, comes to Bethel. And that's where he begins to worship again. I think when we read here that he went up from Egypt, it's significant um, that it's, he's coming up. It's not just a geographical uh, you know, indicator of his travel. It is that. But it actually becomes more representative of what's going to happen in his spiritual life. Egypt is a low place spiritually, and from there he comes up. And he begins to walk and develop his faith again. And he comes into this area the central hill country of Israel. Um, it's a place where Abraham first worshipped. It was a familiar place. He returns to public worship. You didn't, you know, when you build an altar and you sacrifice an animal, you don't do that in private. I'm not just saying that it's not personal. It was highly personal. It was his expression of worship to God. But, you know, when somebody starts burning something in your neighborhood, you take an interest. Why are they burning their leaves again? You know, whatever it might be. But if you see smoke, you see fire, it catches your attention. You pay attention to it. And this small little village state, you know, uh, uh, you know, setup that they had throughout Canaan, if somebody was set a fire going on, it caught the attention. And you can imagine that people were worshiping, were watching this one man. The sole worshiper, I imagine the household of, of Abram as well, would come. I was like, what are they doing and who are they worshiping? Well, over time um, in Bethel, they, be, they became quite familiar. So this is that altar uh, that he had made to the Lord. He kind of became, wanted to go incognito. He wanted to fly under the radar when he was down in Egypt. But now that he's back in the land and he comes to this place of returning to worship, and what a joy it must have been for him to get back to that place of worship, back to that place of promise. Maybe you can even reflect upon your own walk with the Lord at times where you were closer to the Lord and then you fell away and then you came back. And, oh, what, Lord, what a joy it is to be back. Thank you that you've welcomed me back into your presence. And so this is, this is a sweet moment for him. But even as the Lord allows Abram to return to that place of Bethel to worship, the Lord invites all who go down to Egypt. Egypt being a type of the world. Egypt being a place of not walking closely with the Lord, not worshiping the Lord. He invites you to come back. He invites us all to come back to that place. In Hosea, he puts it like this. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. The Lord loves it when his people return to him. Now, he would prefer that we never left him. 
But when we return, he loves to receive us back. And the invitation is, come, let us return to the Lord. Let's go back to that place of worship. Let's go back to that place of devotion and loyalty to our God. Yes, the Lord will chasten. For whom he ch- uh, loves, he chastens. And Abram went through a, a, a chastening. He got rebuked by an ungodly king. And I'm sure there are other things that are not in Included in the text, so it would be pure speculation, but I imagine Sarai had something to say about the whole Egypt experience and her being said, you know, told to concoct this plan to deceive. But you know, the Lord likes to heal, the Lord likes to restore. The Lord, yeah, His hand maybe was upon you to bring uh, some chastening, but He's happy to take that hand off of you that has brought the breaking that he might bring the healing because that's who he is and that's what he does. He's a restorer. He is wanting to do that. Now, we can look in the New Testament and we see that even as the Lord is one that invites us to return to him that he might heal, in the New Testament, it's the same thing. In the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, to the church at Ephesus, who was well known for their strong faith in the Lord. I mean, they had Apollos as a pastor. They had Apostle Paul. They had Timothy. They had John. That's not a bad lineup of pastors. You know what I mean? These were like the heavyweights. And this was a well-established, well-taught church. And and the Lord commends them for their faith and their, their commitment to doctrinal purity and that they don't tolerate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, and they will get rid of anybody who say they're an apostle or not an apostle. But he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your what? Your first love. You didn't lose your first love. You left it. And that word left is a strong word in the Greek language. It's also in other places translated divorce. I'm not saying it should be translated divorce there. But you catch, you catch a level of the, of the weight of that word left. It was a conscious decision that you would leave those things you did at the first of your faith, where there was intimacy, where there was uh, communion. And I am calling you to return, to repent, and do those first works. And, and the Lord would say the same to you. Do the first works. Can you look back at a time in your walk? Maybe it wasn't the beginning of your walk. Maybe it came several years later. But at any point in time in your walk with the Lord where there seems to have been more zeal, more fire. There was more intimacy and communion and, and time spent with the Lord. There was a greater service to the Lord. There was more passion about worship. It wasn't like, get through this worship song so you can get to the message so I can't. No, you were like, sing another. Sing another song. Tarry longer in the fellowship because there was something vibrant. There was something passionate that was going on between you and the Lord. And now here you are. It's not that your doctrine has gone bad. It's that your heart has grown cold. And those first things are no longer the priority of your life. We could also look at another one of these churches, the church of Laodicea. A couple of things about Laodicea. They were very wealthy. They had great, um, they had made a discovery of an ISAV that was, you know, exported around the world, and then they also had these really cool black wool garments that were like the rage of the day. So if you had a Laodicean black wool garment, it was like you or something. And so they say that they were rich and they had need of nothing. 
That was their assessment of themselves. We're self-sufficient. We've got it all together. But the Lord says to them, actually, you're what? Poor, miserable, blind, and naked. They were the, the th- Three of the four things that he says were three things that they prided themselves in. Their, their, their ability to fix eye problems, their, their money, and their garments. As a matter of fact, an earthquake came. This is how wealthy they were. The earthquake came. And uh, Rome was helping out, you know, cities throughout the empire. And they said, hey, um, let us help you out. And they said, no thanks. We need no government assistance. We can take care of it ourselves." <laughs> Whoever de- denies government assistance, what city, state does that? They did that. But they had one opinion of themselves, right? We've got it all together. We're self-sufficient. We have need of nothing. And the Lord says, I've got a totally different take on you guys. You're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And I think we all need to be mindful and we need to be careful that, that we have the same assessment of our own spiritual walks that the Lord has. If you ever want to know what to pray for Troy Warner, Pastor Troy, pray that I am never deluded in thinking I'm in one place when God's saying you're in another place. But I think that's a good prayer for all of us. That we all would be able to say, this is actually where I really am. And not to think that I'm advancing and, oh, I'm good enough. I mean, I, I did so much for the Lord in the years gone by. I, mean, I pretty much can just kind of coast. You got a verse for that? There's no coast verse. There, there's only strive and, 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 and labor more abundantly than all the rest. And be you know, bounding in the work of the Lord. And to, you know, to maintain our faith and to maintain that passion and that love for the Lord. That's what Scripture says. There's no coast verse, okay? Coast verse is a dangerous, uh, that coast idea is a very dangerous idea because you don't. If you're not, you know, ascending the, you know, the hills of your faith, you're going back down. But there's that in-between time, isn't there? There's that in-between time where you've got enough momentum that you're still going forward and you've yet to really go back down yet. And it's in that place that the Lord... um, would say to you, return to me. Um, he says again to these seven churches, one of the seven churches, he says, you know, I give you space to repent. There's that, there's that, that zone where God says, this is, you need to get it right now. This is the time. I'm giving you an opportunity in the midst of your leaving your first love or going down to Egypt. I'm giving you that opportunity right now to make it right. How long is it? We don't know. We don't know how long the Lord gives us to make those things right. But what we do know is that for whom he loves, he chastens. And we also know that he says, I will not always strive with man. There comes a point where that zone for getting things corrected and repent like Abram did after getting the rebuke from um, Pharaoh of all things, and he returns to the place of worship, he heard, he heeded, and he responded. And I would just compel you, if you're in that place where you know you're no longer just zooming up the hill of your faith. You know you're kind of in that place where if you watch, you're actually beginning to go back down and you know there are things that are not the way they used to be. Hey, be zealous and repent. Do the first works. You can expect that not only will God allow you to return to him. Actually, you know, there's one more thing I want to say on this before I move on to this next point I'm about to go. It was back in Hosea verse, um, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. That last phrase of verse 2 says, that we may live in his sight. 
return to him that we may live in his sight. You know, sometimes, I know you would never say this, but sometimes people say things like, I'm sick of you, I don't ever want to see your face again. After what you've done to me, I forgive you, but I don't ever want to be around you again. Which we have to really wonder if that's really forgiveness or not. But what does the Lord say? Return to me that you might live before me. In other words, he wants to see you. He wants you in his sight. And there's this thing that we deal with within our own thinking. It's a condemnation of the enemy. And sometimes it's even other people say, oh, come on. A leopard can't change his spots. You, we know you. We know what you're like. You know, you say you've become a born-again Christian, but we know what you're really like. And people are saying that you won't make that change. But the Lord wants you to make that change, and he wants you to live before him. And the enemy likes to whisper these things into our ears. And other things like, God's done with you. But that's not what we read. Isaiah 1, 18 through 20 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, hear the voice of the Lord saying, come. But come when? Come when? Now. Come now and let us reason together. Don't delay this. Don't put this off to a more convenient time. Actually, in the book of Acts, that's what's said of Felix and Drusilla as Paul witnessed to them all in captivity. And they said, we'll wait for a more convenient time. Guess what? Neither of them ever found the more convenient time. It's believed that of Drusilla that she died when uh, Mount Vespasian erupted and she died in the explosion of that. Felix went off into exile and there's no account that he ever followed the Lord or Drusilla. They had that moment where they could have their sins forgiven and to get it right with the Lord. They had the gospel being preached by them, but they wanted a more convenient time. There's no more convenient time. Now is the time, today is the day of salvation for you to return to the Lord. His hand is reaching out to you. He's willing to forgive you. And there's a, maybe that sin. He's like, man, that, that one can't be forgiven. Which ones did Jesus die for? Because I'm under the impression that Scripture teaches us that he died for all sin. Amen. And that he forgives us of all unrighteousness. That he, that he called a terrorist named Saul of Tarsus... To become one of the spokesmen, the main spokesmen, wrote mo- you know, most of the New Testament to be his servant. And so this idea that I can't return to the Lord and that he won't bless and he, there's no place for favor. I mean, I could maybe get right with God, but I'm always going to be you know, a back row believer. No. What do we read here? He says that if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. The Lord's not going to withhold you. He wants his blessing to be known by you. He wants you to experience that grace of his upon your life. So if you're like, well, I'll come back, but it'll never be the same. That's not the Lord speaking. That is not the Lord. He's saying, come and let me bless you. Let me give you the good of the land. Let me heal you. Let me restore you. So... Listen, if you have allowed worship to lapse in your life, return to Bethel. Come back to Bethel. That 
first place that you worshipped the Lord. First being not necessarily a chronological place, but first being that place of true, genuine worship, where it was at the peak. And yeah, some changes may need to happen. You're going to have to leave Egypt. You're going to have to make some choices. You're going to, if, you, if you worship the Lord as you did at the first, then it's, everybody's going to know about it. It's going to be a public thing. It's not a private thing. Let's keep reading in Genesis chapter 12. More about Abraham. It says, Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great. So they've blessed, but this blessing is bringing a problem. And they cannot dwell together. Verse 7, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. You can just read that. They couldn't find neutral land. There, you know, there are people that own the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, I will go to the left. We really see him as a man of generosity and, and meekness here, don't we? I mean, you, you can make the case for, wait a minute, he's the older guy. And so older guys in this culture at this time, they were the ones that were able to call the shots. Very much a patriarchal society, and so the older would have been respected, he would have been honored, and um, so he could have pulled that cultural card, that age card. He also could have pulled, pulled the spiritual card and said, hey, I got a question for you. Look at this. I had a call from God when I was in Ur of the Chaldeans. Have you had one of those? I don't think you have had that. Okay, so then for me, because I am called and the Lord has promised this to me, has he promised that to you? Oh, you don't have one of those cards either? Okay, well, you need to go home then. I mean, if, if we're out of land, if we can't be where the Canaanites are, we can't be where the Perizzites are, so we're looking for this neutral, you know, grazing fields, and there's not, our, our livestock are, are too huge to, be, to fit into that one. It's time for you to leave. It's time for you to, to, to go home. But he doesn't take that posture at all, does he? Sorry, here we are in this land. Lot, I prefer you. And I'm going to honor you. And I don't want there to be any strife. And so I'm not going to say this is mine and that's yours. I'm just going to say, you tell me what's yours. Because when you say what's yours, then I'll go the other way. And he, he comes with this meekness. Now, don't read meekness and don't read Abraham here as weakness. Because it's not. Meekness is not weakness. Do you know that this same word for meek that we're referring to, like in uh, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That, that word for meekness can also be used of a lion that's been tamed or a, a, a stallion that's been broke. But you would never say of those meek you know, lion or stallion, that they are weak. What is it? It's power under control. Abram is in a place of power, both culturally and spiritually. But he's not going to leverage those things, is he? As power under control. Because he understands what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He understands that principle long before Jesus states it in that way. He understands that God has given him a promise. And here we see his faith really shining. Because 
when you're afraid of being able to take care of your own stuff or you're not going to be able to provide for yourself and fear begins to settle into your life, you don't walk with an open, generous hand. You walk around with a tight, clenched fist watching everybody and every circumstance that would seem to be after what you have. But he's not doing that because he's full of faith. You'll never be a generous person until you're a person of faith. Amen. And I was like, well, I know people that are generous and they're not full of faith. But, you know, when we begin to think about not just giving out of maybe abundance that some people are generous with, but when you begin to give out of your poverty and you're generous, now that becomes a different thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus was pretty impressed by that, wasn't he? The woman who had the, the two mites. And everybody's coming and being generous and putting these large amounts of money in. She comes and drops in these two mites. It's all that she had. And the Lord said, did you guys see that? I mean, mites are just, they're just tiny. It's like smaller than a penny. Just nothing. It's, you couldn't do anything with it. But she gave it all. He says, you see what she did? She's given more than everybody else. It's that kind of generosity that we as believers are to be. When you see the need around you, be generous. When you find yourself in a conflict, don't throw down the spiritual card and the rights card and the cultural card, whatever it is, the age, whatever advantage you have. We, we, these things were written for our learning and our admonition. What can you do to make peace? As far as it lies within you, seek to live peaceably among all men. And for Abraham, that meant, hey, you're my brother, and I don't want to fight, and I don't want our servants fighting each other either. So I'll tell you what, whatever you want, what, what do we have to do to have peace? What land do you want? Because when you go right, I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to go left. And if you go left, I'm not going to fight you. I'll go right. Because what I want is peace. And this is something that we all can learn from, is, is to seek after peace. But hey, we're Americans and we know about demanding rights, don't we? It's all about the rights. But the Lord says, let me teach you about your rights. If somebody asks you to go one mile, say, no way, Jose. I'm not going one foot with you. I've got rights. No, that's not what he said, is it? He said, if he wants you to go one, do what? Go two. If they want to take your coat, give them your shirt also. This is, this is what we've learned about our rights. Paul talked about rights to the church at Corinth. They were having conflict, and they were beginning to sue each other in the, the public courts. And he's like, what a failure. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? And you guys can't even solve personal conflicts among yourself? Why don't you rather suffer wrong than take one another to court? And so Abram's not doing something that was just for the patriarchs. This is a model for how all of us should walk with each other. And when we get grabby, and when we get demanding, and we stop walking in meekness, we lose sight of the fact that it's the meek that are going to inherit the earth. Not the demanding. Not those that have a better lawyer than you. I mean, those aren't the ones that are going to inherit the earth. It's the meek that are going to inherit the earth. The meekest man to ever walk this earth was Jesus. And look at what he submitted himself to. Was it weakness? It was power under control. I could call down legions of angels right now. He could have smoked them all. 
I mean, two angels, we're going to read it in the coming weeks, took care of Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have called down a legion of angels. And the Lord said, I'm not going to do that. Not my will. Your will be done. I'll drink the cup, Lord. That it might do. But, but what is the Lord going to inherit? He's going to inherit this whole earth. There will come a day when he will rule and reign over this earth. You know, when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's teaching those that were gathering and all who would ever read, but he's also thinking about his own life. He's thinking about their own willingness to deny himself that others might go first. And I, I, I love the heart of Abraham. There at the end of verse 8, he says, For we are brothers. And isn't that something we can say in the body of Christ? And when I talk about the body of Christ, I'm not talking about just Calvary Chapel, Lynchburg. I'm talking about all the churches that are in this town and around the world. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Where's the room for fighting? And Jesus, we read in in Ephesians that Jesus, and we know this, that he died on on the cross to reconcile us to himself, to take away our sins. But did you know that's not the only reason why Jesus died on the cross? I mean, it's a big one, and I'm not downplaying it. I'm not trying to make it a secondary issue. But it's not the only reason. There's another reason why Jesus died on the cross. And we read that he died on the cross in Ephesians to make the two men, Jew and Gentile, people at odds, to make the two men what? One. That there would be unity. The last thing any of us ever want to do is fight against the very thing that Jesus died on the cross to produce. Unity. It's easy to get all up in our own feelings and our own emotions and our own sense of of what's right and wrong. And maybe you have been mistreated. It happens, right? But we need to realize, and at some point, we got to just stop and say, wait a minute, we're sisters. We're brothers. Let's Let's not do this. Let's not fight. And let's not let, you know, our team fight. You know, sometimes... It's the team, right? It's, it's your friends, it's your family, it's your acquaintances that end up fighting more than even the two that have the conflict. I, I've seen this so many times. Those two people get reconciled, but everybody else that was fighting, the herdsmen, now they can't get it straight. Amen. And, and, and th- this is what Abram says. It's, like, it's not good for us to fight, and it's not good for them to fight. What do I have to do to make this right so that there's peace? Amen. I'll give it all up. I'll give up. You know, the, the idea of, of having good pastures. But that's faith, isn't it? Is he saying, I'll stop being a livestock guy? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he is saying is, you do whatever you want, but I have a promise that God's going to bless me. And you've got that same promise, that the Lord's going to take care of you, and that he's going to defend you, and that he's going to bless you, and that he's going to prosper you, that he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. So you don't have to to get in this place where you, you begin to walk with a tight fist and not where to be people that are generous. The Lord says, he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. I wonder, do you think God pays his bills? If there's loans out to you because you've helped somebody out financially, do you think God's going to pay you back? I think he pays his bills. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? To tell us, die, paid in full. That wasn't even his bill to pay, it was ours. 
So if he's willing to pay our bill, I guarantee you he's willing to pay his. Hey, as a matter of fact, he says, not only will I repay you, but I'm going to pay you back and so that you're overflowing, that it's overrunning. I'm going to give you, but I'm going to give you back in a way that it just overflows. God is a debtor to no man. And so we need not fear giving and helping and being generous. Because, I mean, you've got to see this as a, as a monetary thing that Abram is doing. This is, this is the business. You have livestock, they don't eat, they die. You lose silver and gold, right? But he trusts the Lord in this way. And so individually we are to be generous. As families we are to be generous. As a local body we are to be generous. And if you've been out on our Wednesday night studies, we've talked about this a couple of times. And, you know, I'm really just praying for uh, that generosity to grow in the Warner family, but also to just grow at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. And um, just not going into all the details, I'm happy to share them, but just, you know, there's, the elders were meeting recently. We're looking at the end of the year budget, looking at next year, and just seeing how the Lord has blessed financially. And we're like, we've got to bless somebody else. <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to give. And so, um, reached out, had a conversation with the local church, and just said, I know this outreach that you guys do every year at Christmas time. We love what you do. Um, do you need any help with it? He goes, Well, we're just, we got a big God and we're trusting the Lord. I'm like, All right. So we were able to give them um, uh, you know, $5,000 towards that project. And, and, and we loved doing it. We loved doing it because it's not just that. We have the opportunity to be generous and support them in preaching the gospel and reaching the same people that we're trying to reach and, and to be a blessing in this community. But it was so much fun to be generous. It's more blessed to give than receive, right? It was so fun to be able to do this and to just, just say, we believe in what you're doing, brothers and sisters down the road, and we want to, we want to support you in that. And, and this is the, the heart that we need to have, not just as a local congregation, but as families and individuals, knowing that God will repay. He'll take care of you. Let's wrap this study up. Um, Got a couple of more points here. Verses 10 and 11. Um, Lot chooses the greener pastures, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Because right now, if you go to this area of the Dead Sea, it looks like disaster. I mean, it's just, there's nothing there. But it was like the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Lord, and the, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So he went for greener pastures. Forget the hill country, tired of going up and down. Let's go to the flatlands, let's go to the, where the green pastures are, and that's where he goes. Um, but he goes in the direction of Sodom. And this turns out to be a really dangerous place. I'm not going to linger on this point, but I just want you to, uh, uh, to, let me just give you a quick rundown. In chapter 13, where we are, verse 10, we see that he looked towards Sodom. In verse 11, he chose the area of Sodom. In verse 12, which we haven't read yet, we see that he's going to set up his tent near Sodom. And then in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, he's going to not just live near Sodom, he's going to live in Sodom. And then by the time you get to chapter 19, Lot is not just living in Sodom, he is sitting at the gate of Sodom. Do you see the progression? Was it wrong for him to choose the greener pastures of the plain of Jordan? I don't think so. 
Was it wrong for him to go and live near Sodom? It's a dangerous place there. You don't need to get there. Was it wrong for him to move into Sodom? Yeah, it was. Certainly was wrong for him to be sitting at the gate of Sodom. He, he, was, he knew differently. He was a worshiper of Yahweh as well. Yes, even Lot, 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, says that Lot was a righteous man. So he makes this decision. This one decision leads to another decision, which leads to another. And five decisions later, he's in a mess. And although he maybe comes out fairly unscathed through the whole process, his wife doesn't make it out. And his two daughters... Well, that's one of the creepy stories of the Bible we'll get to later. But, I mean, they, that's a mess. It's like a soap opera kind of a mess, but worse. And it had its impact. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. You may say, I'm allowed to do anything, but I reply, not everything's good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. And then in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly. Watch the progression. Walking not in the counsel of the godly, nor standing in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he, in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree that are planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Who? Blessed, that's the blessed man. The blessed man who maintains the word of God and allows that to be uh, fed into his or her soul and walks it out is going to be blessed. But the one who's running with the crowd and then standing with the crowd and then sitting with the crowd, well, that's not going to be the case for them. And this is a perfect description of what saw, uh, Lot does in a negative sense. And the Lord is going to have to rescue him out of that mess. Hey, be careful. Bad company corrupts good morals. Actually, the verse says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Because there's this corrupt, there's this deception that surrounds this idea that I can hang out near Sodom and it's not going to impact me. Amen. Okay, it won't impact you, but is it going to impact other people that, you, that are in your family? Is it going to impact your other friends? Is, is it, how's your spouse going to fare through that? How about your children? How about your children's children? Are they going to be able to do that? Are they going to be able to handle it? It's not just about you. It's about those that travel through this life with you. Can they handle it? Can they be around that? And it's not just that, but we've we got to walk carefully. We close here, verses 12 through 18, where God reaffirms his promise to Abram. Verse 12, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. And not just that, right? That's like Genesis 6, right? The days of Noah. They were exceedingly wicked. But look at this. And sinful against the Lord. There's that added note. They were wicked and sinful against Yahweh. I mean, there's something that was specific in what they were doing that just was an offense to the Lord. Verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, 
So that if the man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, that's 22 miles south of Jerusalem, and he built an altar there to the Lord. So he had an altar that was reusable, right, there in Bethel, but he's a new place. He's got to reestablish the worship. He's got to build a new altar. And again, everybody came out. What are you doing? What are you building? What are you burning? Who are you worshiping? He's, he's public in that. But the Lord reaffirms. The important thing here is that the Lord reaffirms his promise. He's failed in Egypt. He's back. He's worshiping again. There's a separation that takes place from Lot. And the Lord says, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I've, I've given you promises and you can count on it. He still has no descendants. He still owns no land and will only ever own the burial plot that he buries Sarah in. But his descendants, they will inherit this land. It will become theirs. It is theirs at this very hour. One day, though, Abraham will inherit this land, but it won't be until the kingdom. But it's a promise that the Lord makes to him. The Lord has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. We have a lot of promises. He's promised you eternal life. He's promised that he's going to um, watch over you, that he's going to provide for you. And so you may have challenges. You may have things pressing against you right now. You may have worries and concerns. I mean, if you're not worried in 2020, you will never worry. Praise the Lord, right? But I mean, if you, I mean, maybe you're, you know, there's things you're concerned about the government, you're concerned about the economy, you're concerned about health things. There are plenty of things to be concerned about, but this is what I tell you your concern is not going to change any one of those things. Amen. What can your worrying do? Can you add one cubit to your stature? Don't be like that. Don't be like the heathen. They worry about all these things. But you, you believe because your Heavenly Father knows the things that you have need of. And He's going to take care of you. He's going to give you the food. He's going to give you the clothing. He, he you know, takes care of the bird and makes sure that it finds the worm. And He makes sure that the hillside gets flowers and grass to clothe itself in. He's going to take care of you. Have faith. So yeah, 2020 is a crazy year. Things happen. And it's not to say that it's, it's not, obviously, I shared with you at the beginning, hard things happen, hard things are taking place. But the Lord is faithful in them all, and he will give you the grace to walk through it. And the thing about worry is we're anticipating a problem that is yet to come, and we don't know how we're going to make it. And I'll tell you how you're going to make it if it comes, which most of those things never do, by the way. Add it up. Do your own math. But if it does, because sometimes life happens and it brings hard things, if it does, if worst case scenario happens, here's what you got to know. The grace you don't have right now for that circumstance is going to come fresh from heaven for you to make it through. And not just get through, but to, but to come through it with, with grace and with joy and with peace. This is our God. He is faithful to his promises and he reaffirms them to Abraham. And maybe you need to have that affirmation again of the promises of God that he's with you. And then he's going to see you through. Father, we thank you for that. And we know, Lord, in our mind we can read this and know that you're a God of promise and that you are faithful to every one of them. And yet, 
Lord, when the phone call comes, when life happens, when our bodies fail, and all of us ex will experience at one point in time those phone calls or these bodies failing. Lord, it's difficult. It's hard. It's easy for us to worry, Lord, unfortunately. But you said fear not. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters that are fearing that they would just feel the fresh wave of your grace coming upon them.